Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Finds Us podcast. We are very excited for part two with Dr. Colby Hancock, who is a physician at Spring Fertility. And today we're going to be talking about fertility-related things like IVF, birth control, pregnancy, all kinds of things. Thank you for being here. Thank you guys for having me back. What an honor. Oh my goodness. Well, everyone is loving the first episode so much <laughs> that we had to to have you back. So to start, can we talk about if you're trying to get pregnant and you haven't yet, how long should you wait to see a fertility specialist? Cool. Okay. So there is a formal answer to this question. And then there's like a, what does everyone actually do in real life answer to this question? So the, the formal recommendation is that if you are under 35 and you have been trying for six to 12 months and you have not achieved a pregnancy, meaning you have pretty regular periods, you're sort of timing intercourse around the time of ovulation and we'll we'll go into exactly what what that involves and you have not achieved a pregnancy then it might be time to see a fertility specialist and the thought there is that the pregnancy rate per month between age like 30 and 35 say ranges between probably 15 to like 20 to 22 percent so at age 30 maybe it's 20 to 22 percent and age 35 it's like 15 to 18 percent per month and so despite like what you see in the movies or what you hear your friends talk about that they got pregnant on the first try for most couples it truly does take a few months of trying to to achieve pregnancy based on just those stats those numbers alone And the reason we recommend that somebody try at least for a few months is that in theory, you should be getting pregnant by month three, four, five, six, when you start to get out to month six through 12 and you have not achieved a pregnancy, it starts to suggest that maybe there's some underlying cause of infertility. And 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 therefore, that's the point when we as fertility specialists can come in and try to ascertain what the reason is for the infertility and, um, a, 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 and go over what potential treatment options there are. Now, that recommendation of 6 to 12 months starts to change a little bit when you get to be over 35. And so when you're over 35, once you get to six months and you've been trying, we say probably by six months you should come in to see a fertility specialist. And the reason for that is because if we do our workup and we find that there is some cause of infertility, then once you're over 35, success rates with IVF start to go down for two reasons, both of which we kind of talked about last week. One is that your reserve goes down slightly each year. And so as we age and the reserve goes down, the number of eggs that we get per cycle goes down. Egg quality also starts to change at 35. And so in theory, as you age past 35 and say we find an infertility diagnosis and you require IVF, you're potentially getting fewer eggs of which a smaller proportion are good quality. And so it becomes harder to be successful at IVF the older you are past 35. And so the reason that we shorten that recommended trying to conceive time period to six months is when when you're past 35 is because we want to know pretty soon if you're going to need IVF because if you do we want to get started because the longer you wait to do IVF the less success you're going to be generally like sort of very broadly speaking and so that's where those numbers come from now I say I would say that there's like a a broad mix of people um of uh, not people a broad mix of like timeframes of which people have been trying to conceive before they come in to see me. And it varies. In New York, 
people probably skew towards coming to see a fertility specialist a little bit sooner because they're New Yorkers and they are on the go and on the run and they have their timeline and they mm-hmm. wanted to be pregnant yesterday according to their like grand scheme. And it was all mapped out in their type A lifestyle, which <laughs> is very typical of our New York patients. And, um, and so I would say most couples, you know, even if they're under 35, when they're getting you know, getting towards six months, they they often come in and patients who are over 35, also probably after a couple of months. So I would say both, you know, everyone across all age groups usually come in around or shortly before six months of trying. It's less common in New York that we see people who have been trying for like 13, 14 months before coming in to, to, to see a fertility specialist, or at least at least if it's been that long, they've done um, some of the initial workup with their gynecologist. And we can we can go into what that initial workup is. So they've at least started to do some investigation if if they've been trying for like 8, 12, 14 months. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, so should we jump into reasons someone would experience infertility or do you want to get into what you were just saying about the gynecologist? Oh, yeah. So, okay. So it's really helpful. We talked a little bit last time, and I was just alluding to how fertility sort of changes naturally over time. But actually, on a per month basis, like what actually has to happen to achieve pregnancy, it's really helpful to sort of briefly review that because it helps to understand what the basic workup and like the first steps that we do when we're seeing a couple for infertility. And, and and some of this, like I said, might be done by the gynecologist already before you come in to see a fertility specialist. And so on any given month for a pregnancy to occur, your body has to recruit an egg, one egg, and get ready to ovulate that egg. And in the days leading up to when you ovulate, ideally you've had sex and the t- sperm swim through the cervix, up through the uterus, out the fallopian tube, and the sperm actually hang out in the fallopian tube, almost towards the end of the fallopian tube. And the sperm can live in the fallopian tubes for like 72 hours or more. They can hang out there for a couple of days waiting for the egg. Once you ovulate, and the egg is actually like released into the pelvis, it lives for not very long, like less than 24 hours. And so that once the egg is ovulated into the pelvis, the egg actually has to get picked up by the fallopian tube. It has these little like, like little like dangly fingers almost at the end of the fallopian tube. And they like sort of like pick up the egg from, from the, from the fluid floating around the ovary. And then the egg and the sperm actually meet in the fallopian tube towards the end of the fallopian tube, right after the, the fallopian tube picks it up. And so since the egg only lives for like less than 24 hours and the sperm can live for a couple of days, that's why we say the fertile window is that time period, the 48 hours leading up to when you actually ovulate and the egg is released. And that's like the most fertile time to have intercourse because we want the sperm to have time to swim all the way out to the end of the fallopian tube so that they can be there sort of ready and waiting as soon as you ovulate since the egg has such like a short half-life that it that it survives after you ovulate. And once the egg and the sperm meet and fertilization occurs in, in the tube, then the uh, embryo, so now it's a, in a single cell, each egg is one cell and it's had a sperm injected into it. And then it starts to divide. So that cell divides into two cells and then each of those divide into two cells and keeps dividing and dividing and dividing. And it actually takes about five days for that that embryo as it's growing and dividing. The fallopian tube sort of sweeps the embryo back towards the uterus. And about five days after ovulation or fertilization has occurred, that embryo arrives back at the uterus. And by the time it gets to the uterus, it's a fully, well, what we call blastocyst embryo. And it's got few hundred cells and 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 that's the point where it actually like attaches to the wall of the uterus and starts the process of implantation and the embryo actually literally like invades into the wall of the uterus so those are all the steps that need to happen in any one given month for fertilization to occur 
And so that's actually a lot of like dynamic moving parts. And so the way that we approach infertility, like the workup, trying to figure out if there's anything going on is by first uh, assessing whether somebody has regular periods. And part of this is, you know, patient can obviously tell us how, how often do they get their periods? Is it every 28 days? Is it every 26 to 29 days? Is it really variable? We, we discuss that with the patient. And then we can also tell by ultrasound, looking to see if you are like about to ovulate or if you've recently ovulated. Um, and we compare that ultrasound with blood work as your hormones, they fluctuate in a very predictable pattern throughout the menstrual cycle. And so usually we can tell between the person's menstrual history and the ultrasound and the blood work, yes or no, are they ovulating at a regular predictable frequency? And have they been appropriately timing intercourse based on when when we think they've been ovulating and when they're actually having intercourse? Like, are, are they actually truly hitting that um, that fertile window in those days leading up to ovulation? The next thing that we check is we want to make sure that your fallopian tubes are actually open. And so fallopian tubes themselves are are like actually really, really delicate and fine. And they're like these little long tubes that come off each side of the uterus. And as I said, when I was describing what needs to happen each month, it's really important for them to be like totally open and functional and able to, to move the embryo back to the uterus. and Things like inflammation and infection in the pelvis can really easily damage the tubes because they're so delicate. Um, Things like untreated or repeated gonorrhea or chlamydia, um, any, honestly, any intra-abdominal infections, like a ruptured appendix or a ruptured gallbladder that sort of causes infection in the pelvis, um, multiple abdominal or pelvic surgeries. Um, any of these things can cause inflammation and uh, an infection in the pelvis, and that is prone to causing damage on the fallopian tubes. Endometriosis is another big one. And so the way that we check if your tubes are open is with something called an HSG, um, and that stands for hysterosalpingogram, which is like a bit of a mouthful. But basically what we do is we put a little catheter in the cervix and then we put fluid in the uterus and we can watch as the fluid sort of flows out through each of the tubes. And that's how we confirm that that they're open. And so it's um, it's a it's pretty tolerable procedure. It's definitely like you have cramps when we do it, but most people tolerate it okay. And the interesting thing about um, about HSG, which I often tell patients is that it's diagnostic, like as in it confirms if the tubes are open, but it also like kind of like flushes the tubes out, sort of like like a rotor rooter the tubes to like, because mm-hmm. sometimes they, they're so delicate. And if like any like mucus or cells or debris kind of builds up, that can cause like a functional blockage of the tube, even though the tube itself is totally fine. And so sometimes when we flush out the tubes, we see a little bit of an increased pregnancy rate in the month or so following that. And I actually had just had a string of patients where I did the the HSG and like three of them in a row got pregnant the next month. So um, it does, you know, it did definitely is something that we often recommend unless we know the patient is going straight to IVF, in which case we're effectively bypassing the tubes and we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, if the person, if we're, if we're going straight to IVF, then we don't really care, you know, what, what's going on with the tubes, but it, you know, usually it's part of the workup before if somebody's going to be trying, you know, with inseminations or, or trying on their own. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing we do is we check the sperm. So men are not off the hook in all of this. And we know that uh, actually you know, it's it's more than you would think the proportion of cases that have some portion of male factor infertility. Like we think it's actually like maybe 20 or up to 30%. And what's very easy for the men, all they do is they come in, they masturbate, they give us a sample and we check the sample for the count, like the concentration of sperm and the um, motility, like the swimming ability. And the shape called the morphology of the sperm. And basically it has to be sort of at a, there's like a threshold level for each parameter. 
that we check. And then the last thing that we check is just a genetic test for both of the parents. And that looks for, have you guys heard of recessive diseases? Examples are like sickle cell or cystic fibrosis, ASACs. Mm -hmm. Those are diseases where you can carry a copy of it and you're not affected, you don't have the disease. But if your partner also carries a copy of that disease, they're also healthy and they're not affected. But if you both pass on the disease copy, the offspring can, if they inherit two disease copies, can actually have the full-blown disease. And so Mm -hmm. we screen to make sure each of the, the parents to make sure that they're not carriers of any of the same diseases. Because if they are, it's, a, it, it's it's fine. We have a workaround, which is IVF, because what we can do is we can make embryos and then test the embryos and figure out which embryos have two copies of that disease gene. Wow. Fascinating. I know. Those are the like main basic steps that we do for most infertility patients coming in. And is there like a lifestyle factor or something about the environment in which you live or stress that could affect fertility? Um, Those are all huge hot button items that there's lots of research going into. Environment. So yes and no. There is a lot of literature on chemicals in the environment BPAs and other like phthalates and things like that that are in like everyday items. And there's also literature on like just sort of general air pollution. And they're really hard to study environmental factors. And the reason is because you can sort of imagine it. Like say you're trying to study plastics leaching out of water bottles into into water that people are drinking, right? And you have two groups of of patients this is all recall and it's subject to something called recall bias. So, so let's say you have two patients, two sets of patients, and you have one set of patients who did well in their IVF cycle and got pregnant. And you have one set of patients who did not do well or they didn't get pregnant and there was some adverse outcome, right? And you're trying to compare what was the environment, was there an environmental exposure that was different between these two groups? Mm-hmm. And the way only get that data is you can say, okay, you group who did well in IVF and are are happily pregnant or have a baby, about how many plastic water bottles did you drink out of the past year, right? And they're going to make, I don't know, Mm -hmm. one a week or one a month, you know, whatever. They'll have some Mm -hmm. some general sense. The group that did not do well or had some adverse outcome or or didn't have, you know, an outcome that was expected um, in their IVF cycle. And you say, you group who's infertile and hasn't done well in your IVF cycle, how many water bottles did you drink out of over the past year? And they're going to make, oh my God, so many, like I, like you, mm. they must've been the water, but you know what I mean? Like, so it's, yeah. it's really hard to conduct, to re- set up those type of studies really well. And so that has, has been the main challenge in determining, I'm not saying that they don't have an effect. It's just hard for us to infer exactly how much effect things like that have. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some studies about like proximity of where people live to like major highways or major pollution zones. And there may be a slightly lower pregnancy rate in those areas. But those areas may also be areas where people have less access to um, fertility care. And so again, a lot of like confounding variables in those studies. Lifestyle-wise, we do know that there are two things that absolutely do contribute to infertility. One is cigarette smoking, and we think vaping probably falls into that category. And there's a multitude of reasons, and we can start with the eggs and sort of move through. So smoking seems to accelerate the rate at which you lose eggs. So people actually, lifelong smokers go through menopause on the average of two years earlier than non-smoking counterparts. Smokers, we we think that there's a inferior, like their egg quality is decreased as compared to non-smoking counterparts. Probably a lot of that is like oxidative damage. Smoking interferes with the functioning of your fallopian tube. So remember I said the fallopian tube has to like sweep that growing embryo back to the uterus. And when people are smokers, it really interferes with the fallopian tube's functionality to be able to move the embryo back to the uterus. And so it can impact that as well. 
may have some impact on the uterine lining receptivity uh, ability of the embryo to implant. And then obviously smoking is not recommended or safe during, during pregnancy. And so that is one thing that we do see, um, lower, you know, more infertility in patients that are, that are smokers. And unfortunately, patients with obesity have a similar outcome. So infertility rates are higher and unfortunately success rates of multiple different um, like infertility treatments are often lower in patients that have a higher BMI. And we think here a lot of it might be due to some imbalances. A lot of it is like oxidative stress or elevated cortisol, things like that, that might contribute to like an overall sort of semi-inflammatory state that might have a negative impact on fertility. And so those two things certainly do have an impact. What else? Coffee, that's a hot button item. One cup of coffee per day is not associated with infertility or miscarriage. And I think Gosh, I I was going to say, don't quote me, but you literally are quoting me because I'm on a podcast. (laughs) Um, But that's like 100 grams of caffeine. It's like two Diet Cokes. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's, that's okay. But once you get up to like, five cups, which is like 300 grams of caffeine or, or more. And again, I'm pulling these numbers off the top of my head. Um, But it's really when you get into multiple cups of coffee per day, hard to say impact on infertility, but it does potentially seem to be um, associated with slightly higher miscarriage rate with like significant caffeine uh, consumption. So that's also something lifestyle wise that people can kind of kind of think about. Interesting. So would matcha be a good alternative? Because as well, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Also, yes, yes. Um, You know, so, uh, okay, so everything is in milligrams of caffeine. So I think and this is probably something that's like Googleable. I think a cup of a can of Diet Coke is 50. And I think like a medium coffee is maybe like a hundred. And then you can kind of take it from there. Matcha, I don't know where matcha falls. I know green tea is like almost as much as, as coffee. It's like somewhere between Diet Coke and coffee. Mm. Okay. So basically, and you don't have to answer this as, if this is out of your wheelhouse, but like I have a friend who's recently pregnant and she had some things that she's been doing, like she's been taking those prenatal vitamins for three months and things like that. So if you are trying oh, yes. to get pregnant. Yes, like, yes, you know. yes, you're right. I, that's something I totally miss. Prenatal vitamins starting three months ahead. Absolutely. You want to make sure that um, it has some iron and some calcium. The basic prenatal should have folic acid that's 400 micrograms, which most of them have. I don't, there's rarely a pre, because it's like pretty much a requirement and that's it. And there's some, you know, if you, they can, especially when you're early pregnancy, they can be really nauseating prenatal vitamins. Um, And so there's a lot of newer brands on the market that are either gummies or like easy on the stomach. And I've had patients have had a lot of success with those. The one caveat is the gummies sometimes don't have as much iron or calcium in them. They mm-hmm. are usually lacking a little bit in iron. So just look. And if if you're seeing your gynecologist or your fertility doctor, if you just screenshot them the label, they'll be able to to tell you if it looks good. Okay. And so if you're trying to get pregnant, it's maybe a good idea to eliminate some caffeine. Yeah. I mean, you not eliminate. I mean, unless you're drinking like two cups in the morning and a cup in the afternoon, like maybe you try to go back a little bit. But if you just have one cup every morning, that's do not give that up. You can have that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have like three or four. <laughs> so it's good. I'm not trying to get pregnant right now. Okay. So let's see. Do you have any apps or tools that you recommend to track ovulation? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So if your periods are already kind of regular, like they fluctuate within like two or three days of how long, how, how, how long it is between periods. So like, let's say one month, it's 28 days. The next month it's 30 days. Next month, it's 29 days. The next month, it's 28. Next, it's 31. I would consider that pretty regular. And you put that into the app. And what the app does is it says, okay, 
on average, this person's cycle is like 29.5 days. And so then it calculates out when you're going to ovulate based on that length of that cycle period. And, and and the way that it does it, it's super simple. Basically, from the day you ovulate to the day you get your period is usually about 13 to 14 days. And so if your period's 28 days, the, the remaining number of days, 28 minus 13 or 14, that's how long it takes for you from when you get your period to when you ovulate. And that's all the app is doing is just putting that math in and giving you a prediction of when you're going to ovulate. And then it from the day that it's predicting that you ovulate based on the data that you've been putting in about your menstrual cycles, it subtracts like three days. And then that's your fertile window, those three days leading up to the day that you're going to ovulate. And that's literally all the apps are doing. So you could do it yourself or you can put it in an app. The apps are super handy. They're on your phone, less thinking and like math and days that you have to put out on a calendar. That works for anyone whose cycles are are regular, like with they they never fluctuate more than a couple of days, the length in between two periods. For somebody whose cycles fluctuate more than three days, I've found that they can become a little bit more challenging in meaning, or they become a little bit less accurate, I should say. So the person whose cycles range between 34 and 40 days, the app isn't going to really give you a good prediction of the day that you're ovulating. And so then you have to rely on, on other methods, which are a little more labor intensive. And so that those ways that you can then that you can look for ovulation if that's you is is really two things. You can do ovulation monitoring in the urine. So your body starts to release that horm this hormone called LH stands for luteinizing hormone about 36 hours before your the egg is actually released. And so you can test your urine every morning or every evening and wait and then it will detect when that LH starts to go up. And then you know it's about 36 hours before you're going to ovulate and you're like right in you know exact prime fertile window timing to have intercourse. And so urine ovulation strips lots of people uh, find to be very helpful. And you can also monitor your cervical mucus. And you might not actually know it when it's happening on any one month, but people probably can recognize that at least once or twice in your life, you've probably noticed that your your dis, your vaginal discharge is like really clear and stretchy and stringy as opposed to like a little bit um, like more whitish and, and watery in other times of your menstrual cycle. And when your dis when your discharge is like that clear, like really stretchy discharge, that usually signals you're about you know you're gonna ovulate in the next like 24 to 48 hours. And so that's another good um, way to sort of monitor when your fertile window is and when you're ovulating. And so yes, apps can work. They're all very, very similar. There's not one particular app that I like. But there, it's really only is going to work for you if your periods are pretty on the dot regular. If they're not, I would recommend moving more towards an ovulation predictor kit. Or if it's not going to gross you out, monitoring your cervical mucus. Um, there's this one brand. Um, uh, there's so many brands of ovulation predictor kits. This is like really getting detailed. But if your periods are like fairly regular, but they vary more than three days, you can use like the cheapo ovulation predictor kits from Walgreens. They like look like pool pH test strips. They're like super cheap. They don't have a cartridge or anything. They're like very non-fancy and those will work for most people. If you're somebody where your periods are a little bit more irregular, there is this brand called Modern Fertility and um, it's it's test strips, but it's also paired with like this little cartridge and you you test for a few days in a row and it sort of knows, it gets to know what your baseline LH is. Um, and so then when it changes and it starts to go up, when you're going to be surging, it can detect a difference and it can be a little bit more accurate. That's more helpful when somebody has a, a more more irregular period. So if your periods are a little more irregular, I would I would buy something a little um a little more fancy and expensive like the modern fertility one but with with the modern fertility kits basically it calibrates to your own baseline LH and so that 
when there's even any little bit of a change and you're you're starting to to your body's starting to what we call surge when when the LH starts to go up and that triggers ovulation, it can detect it a little bit easier. And so that's sometimes more helpful for patients that have slightly more irregular periods. Oh, okay. And then in the fertile window is frequency of intercourse something like the amount of sperm? There's, so there's 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 good studies um at least every 48 hours and there's no difference if you do it every day or every other day but if you stretch it out beyond every other day the pregnancy rate start to go down a tiny bit so it seems like every other day or more is fine but Every day is not better than every other day. So whatever works for, for for your relationship. Yeah. Okay. And then what about words of wisdom for someone who is trying to get pregnant, but they haven't been able to yet? So it is, it's like a very, very, very challenging time. I would say my biggest word of wisdom is to listen to your body know your body. When you go to see a fertility specialist, really truth, be absolutely like truthful, like ex- like try to track your periods. So you have a sense of how regular your periods are. The number of months that you've actually been trying, like where you actually think that intercourse was timed in the fertile window, mm-hmm. um, having a sense of your symptoms around the time of your periods Things like that are all really, really helpful to have kind of thought about when you come in. Oftentimes patients come in and say, oh, we've been trying for eight months. And I'm like, okay, great. Like how far apart are your periods? Like, oh, I don't know, maybe every 30 days. Um, And then I'm like, okay, have you been timing it around ovulation? And they're like, well, I think, you know, and then so sort of they, they've been trying, but they haven't, they haven't, they, they haven't really like thought about it. Um, And so it's helpful to have that kind of written down. And so that's what I would say in terms of, in terms of words of wisdom. And, you know, I know that we said in the very beginning, we let out with, you know, when you're getting towards, um, towards six months is when most, is when most patients um, tend to, to come in. There's no like ideal right time. Like if, if you think, it feels too early to come in at six months, then maybe, you know, in, in, instead of thinking about it, like, I feel like a lot of patients, when they come in, they feel like they're like, they're giving up or they couldn't do it or um, their body is failing them. Or um, it feels like a really big step to come in um, to see a fertility specialist for both partners, the male and the female. But it's really helpful when you come in. Now you're working with like answers and 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 data, and it doesn't always necessarily mean that you come in and you're walking out starting IVF the next day. For many many couples, we start out by doing that basic set of initial testing. And for some couples, the conclusion is that maybe they're going to continue to try for a few months based on everything that we saw and all the all the testing. And so it's really can be very, very helpful to come in for a consult. So you sort of know what you're working with in terms of your next steps, your plan. We hear all these things, endometriosis, fibroids, PCOS, et cetera. Oh, my gosh. I know everything. Right. And we're like, what is that? That sounds a little bit scary. And how do we treat that and all of the things? Do you want to talk about that at all or no? Sure. Yeah. So, okay. So a couple of super common gynecology diagnosis diagnoses as they relate to infertility. So starting out with fibroids, um, fibroids are benign muscular growths in the wall of the uterus, and they can be on the outside of the uterus. They can be in the wall of the uterus. And really, they mainly contribute to infertility when they are in a location that uh, hinders one of those steps that I talked about that need to occur for, 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 for uh, conception to happen. So mostly we think about fibroids that are actually sticking into the cavity of the uterus where they're like distorting the the internal cavity of the uterus where the embryo is going to be implanting. And so if there's a big fibroid sticking into the wall of, 
uh, of the cavity and the embryo goes to try to implant near or on where the fibroid is, it doesn't get as much blood flow. It's not able to kind of burrow in and, and implant the way it wants. And so we think that fibroids that are very close or in the, the endometrial cavity, in the cavity of the uterus, can impact mostly implantation or the ability of the embryo to, to establish as a pregnancy. So those fibroids often have to be um, removed, and there's a variety of minimally invasive ways that the fibroids can be removed. And then theoretically, there are also fibroids that could be like right near where the fallopian tube is supposed to be connecting to the uterus. And so they can effectively like block off one of your fallopian tubes. And so I've seen fibroids like that that have contributed to somebody's infertility as well. Um, and so 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 with fibroids, it's mostly like a mechanical reason, we think that that it's impacting fertility. For PCOS, which is a um, a spectrum called polycystic ovarian syndrome, and that actually has nothing to do with cysts. It's sort of a misnomer. It is when patients have a really high ovarian reserve, so meaning their egg count is super, super, super high. And what this does is it causes a few things to happen. So the hormones at the level of like the balance between estrogen and your androgens, the male hormones, and there's a few different ones of them, can become off balance. And that leads to sort of a vicious cycle where your brain isn't able to send out the signals that tell your ovary to like pick one egg and grow that egg. Um, And so those people who have PCOS often are what we call oligoovulatory. So they have very irregular spaced out periods. So their periods might be like 40 to 60 or 70 days apart. And so from a fertility perspective, what happens is these patients, it's like, like they, it's so impossible to track their periods. They never know when they're ovulating. And so they never know when their fertile window is. And so it becomes really frustrating and challenging for them to know when to have sex. And so that's literally the main source of infertility in patients with PCOS is because they don't ovulate regularly enough or on any kind of predictable frequency. And so for those patients, what we do is we can give them it's actually really simple. You take an oral medication the first like five days of the menstrual cycle, and it sort of induces your brain to like forces your brain to put out a pulse of that hormone FSH, which is the egg growing hormone. And um, that pulse is usually enough to get one or maybe two eggs to grow um, at, in a reg in the more regular pattern. And so we can get that PCOS person ovulating every like for weeks. And so their periods get to be monthly and then they have a real shot at at being able to achieve pregnancy because they're actually ovulating and releasing eggs on a regular frequency. And then the last one, endometriosis, is a disease where the lining of your menstrual, of your your uterus, um, it's called the endometrium. And it's very, the endometrium is very responsive to hormones, particularly to your estrogen. And so as your estrogen goes up, the endometrium sort of grows and and it becomes like like vascular and makes particular like changes in the way that it appears. And that's a good thing when it's inside your uterus because it makes the uterus nice and fluffy and ready for implantation. When you have endometriosis, that endometrial lining gets outside of the uterus and it can land on the fallopian tubes. It can land on the ovary. It can land on the bladder. It can land on the bowels. And each menstrual cycle, when your estrogen goes up, that endometrial tissue, even though it's not in your uterus, flares up and responds to the estrogen and causes lots of inflammation and irritation to whatever tissue in your pelvis it's landed on. So if that's your fallopian tubes, it can cause scarring and damage to your fallopian tubes, and you can end up with blocked or damaged fallopian tubes. If it ends up on the the ovaries, you can end with um, like endometriomas, like big cysts on the ovaries. If it lands on the bowel, you can have GI symptoms during your menstrual cycle. If it lands on the bladder, it can cause um, like bladder symptoms, all, all kinds of things. And so 
in terms of infertility, certainly it can cause tubal, tubal damage and the general inflammatory state in the in the pelvis um, we think can sometimes also contribute to general infertility if the patient has like a very very severe case of of endometriosis and you know the treatment varies very much from case to case depending on how the patient is trying to get pregnant what the goals are what their particular degree of severity uh, of endometriosis and where the endometriosis is. So that's a little bit less straightforward in terms of like, what's the fix for that. But all of these three things um, we can absolutely work around. And it's like the bread and butter of what I see and do every day. I think a lot of people have questions about birth control, about, you know, we keep hearing about it's not so good to be on it for years and Okay. So yeah, that's a good one. So that actually is a very common question. So all the time I have patients coming in, either infertility patients or, or patients who are looking for fertility preservation. And, um, they're like, like I'm, I'm asking them, you know, are your periods regular? Yes. No. How long ran birth control pill? And like, Ooh, I was on it for, they're like, they're like horrified. They're like, I was on it for 15 years. Like, is that bad? I'm so like, it just feels like it was so long. It is absolutely not. It is total oral birth control, IUDs, whatever form of birth control. It is absolutely has no bearing on your future fertility and the length of time that you are on any of those, those birth control methods. The one thing that can happen is, and I, and I do see this all the time, somebody so let's say they had horrible periods in their teen years and terrible acne and they went on the birth control at like age 16 mm-hmm. and they've been on it for 15 years. And now they're 30 something and they're, they're coming off um, and they don't get their period and they wait two months and they don't get their period and they wait three months and they don't get their period. And they're like, the birth control pill made me lose my period. It messed up my hormones and now I don't get my period. That's actually not true. What actually is happening there is that that person, because they went on birth control as a teenager, so they don't know whether their periods actually were ever regular. And then they went on the birth control. They got one period each month every time they did their placebo week of their birth control pill. And now that they've stopped it, they found, oh, actually, my periods aren't regular. Like this whole time, I've actually had sort of irregular periods And it was just sort of being masked by the birth control. So it's not that the birth control makes your periods become irregular. It's that you probably had slightly irregular periods, but it was being masked by the birth control. And we're just now finding that out. And it's all the more annoying because you are now trying to get pregnant and all you want is to have regular periods so you know when to have sex, right? So it is a very frustrating situation for many people who are coming off birth control when they're trying to get pregnant, but it's not actually anything that the birth control is has done to your body or, or altered your system in any way. It's just that underlying your system, the drive between your brain and your ovary that sends those signals to grow an egg and to ovulate that egg um, were not like super regular, your own physiology is not super regular. You just thought it was because you've been on birth control. And so it seemed like it had been regular for 15 years. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. And really important for people to know that that that's great. Mm-hmm. Information. Mm-hmm. Well, what I would say, you know, so, so to that point, um, if you are on oral birth control and you don't recall the last time you had regular periods, like, you haven't really been off it in five or 10 years, or you went on as a teen and you haven't really had a significant like sort of period off the birth control and you don't know what your periods are doing off the birth control. It's reasonable if you're either want to know to just do a trial period of like three or four months off birth control to see if your periods are regular or make sure that you give yourself a grace period from when you're coming off the birth control to when you are trying to get pregnant Give yourself like one to three months to see what your periods do after you come off the birth control, because not a lot of people come off the birth control um, and like immediately ovulate two weeks later. Some people do, but not everyone. And if you're thinking you're going to get pregnant Mm -hmm. two weeks after you stop your birth control, it's going to be really annoying if you don't do that. If you if you don't know your underlying periods are. 
If you do know, like, oh, like say you went off for six months in college and you got regular periods each month, then fine. You'll probably be fine. You can stop the birth control and expect a period a month later. But if you don't know what your underlying natural period cyclicity is, give yourself a couple of months. You can figure out what it is. Wonderful. Very pertinent advice. Okay. So we'll do like a quick and dirty IVF. Very similar to what we talked about last week with egg freezing. So each month, normally, your ovary offers up a whole bunch of eggs. Your body only ever allows one of those bunch that were offered up to ovulate. When we do IVF or egg freezing, the same, growing the eggs is exactly the same. We sneak in when your ovaries just offered up all those eggs for a chance at ovulation. And rather than relying on a tiny little bit of the egg growing hormone called FSH from that's coming down from your brain, when we want to grow all the eggs, we give you injectable FSH, same exact hormone that your brain is putting out. We just give you more enough for all of the eggs your ovaries offered up that month to grow. And then rather than letting you ovulate, we go in and do the egg retrieval and collect all the eggs that that grew for that month. And so we're sort of like rescuing the eggs from for, for that for that cycle. And so that's how we get all the eggs. And then when we're doing IVF, the eggs then get fertilized. And then those fertilized eggs start to divide and grow. Like I was describing how the embryo is dividing in the fallopian tubes. That's what happens in the lab. And the embryo grows for five days in the lab. And once the embryos get to be that blastocyst embryo stage, where like I said, they have several hundred cells, then we can biopsy a few cells from the outside of the embryo and send them for genetic testing. And then that's when we're getting a report for each embryo as to whether or not that embryo has two copies of all the chromosomes. We check the chromosomes and we check the gender. And so at the end of your IVF cycle, you'll know, okay, I have two normal female embryos and one normal male embryo. And then those embryos can either go back into your uterus right right away, or they can be frozen and go back into your uterus on a subsequent cycle. And there's a lot of sort of variations in in the timing of the transfer and whether or not you do genetic testing on the embryos um, and when the embryos go back. There's like multiple variations on that, but um, that's sort of the general process of, of IVF. And so, like I said, the things that determine success, one is it's a numbers game. How many eggs are you getting per cycle? And then the other piece of it is age because age largely determines the ability of the eggs to actually get to the embryo stage. And age also determines the percent of embryos that are normal. And so those are the sort of two things that that generally are predictive of success in an IVF cycle. Okay. I know, my goodness. And then how come people have multiple babies (laughs) when they're having IVF? Like when people have twins? Mm -hmm. Or more. Good question. Okay, so... If you have noticed, like IVF from 10 plus years ago, there were a lot of twins. More recently, especially in the past five years, there are very few IVF twins. And we've actually been working really, really hard as a field towards reducing this twin rate. And the the reason that there's that major change is because actually 10 plus years ago, we did not have that technology to genetically test the embryos to confirm which embryos were balanced and had two copies of all the chromosomes. And so 10 years ago, we had a 38-year-old say, they're doing IVF. We got a a couple of embryos and I have no way of telling which embryos have two copies of all the chromosomes and which embryos have a chromosomal abnormality. And the embryos that have a chromosomal abnormality either can't turn into a pregnancy or become like an early miscarriage. They can't, if they're missing a chromosome, like the chromosomes are unbalanced, it's they, they can't grow past a certain point because it's such a big, such a big error. And so 10 years ago, we didn't have any way to tell which embryos were normal chromosomally and which were abnormal. And so we'd say, okay, at 38, it's 50-50 if any one embryo is normal or not. So let's put back two or let's put back three. If you're like 40 or 40 plus, we'll put back multiple untested embryos because it's like 50-50 or when you're 40, it's like it's like 60-70% abnormal and 30-40% normal. And so we to 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 stack the odds in the patient's favor, we put back multiple embryos because because we didn't have the ability to test them. And so 
those are the cases where when we were putting back multiple embryos, where we ended up with multiples like twins or triplets, because we didn't, we didn't have any way to check the embryos before. And some percent of time we put back two embryos, they were both normal and that person ended up with twins. And so that was such a huge burden on the healthcare system and for maternal and a obstetric outcomes and for the outcomes for the for the babies and it's a burden on the families they have twins and the twins were born early and they have special needs and it's a burden on the healthcare system like in general it was just like it became like a really really significant issue and that was really the main push to develop this genetic testing to be able to check each chromosome and whether each embryo and whether or not it has two copies of all the chromosomes. And so now that we have that technology, we test, we can test the embryos up front and we know which embryos are normal. And then we put back one normal embryo at a time, as opposed to like, like hedging our bet and putting back multiple untested embryos. Does that make sense? Yes. Very Mm -hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we why we see much, much, much fewer IVF twins, because we're instead of letting the body do the testing, we're doing the testing up front and just putting back one normal at a time. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Is it do you feel like medicine is just changing all the time now every day? It is. It is. So right now with embryos, we can test the chromosomes and obviously we get the gender because we get the X and Y and we can check for a specific single gene disease like the ones I was talking about on the panel that we send in the mom and dad when they when they come in for a fertility workup. Those mm-hmm. are like a single gene diseases like Tay-Sachs, cystic fibrosis, things like that, where mm-hmm. we know it's at one exact location. We can look exactly at that location. And that's pretty much the extent of what we can test for in the embryos. Now, there is technology that is currently being developed and some of it is already developed and, and, and may potentially be available for use in the next 5, 10, 20 years to do even more with the genetic testing, like looking for diseases that are polygenetic, like things where it's a disease, it's not one exact location. And if you have a mutation at that location, then you have the disease. There are some diseases for instance, like diabetes or, or hypertension or something like that, where there's mul- where it's m- multiple different genetic predispositions at different locations mm-hmm. and environmental factors and other factors. And we can potentially look at multiple genetic locations and say, okay, this embryo has a 20% lifetime risk of this polygenetic disease, but this embryo has a 50% lifetime risk and this embryo has a 10% lifetime risk, but it becomes challenging. And you can see where it become even more challenging as we're able to test for more and more things in the embryos. How do you know which embryo to transfer first? Do you transfer the male that's not a carrier for this, but has a higher risk of diabetes or you transfer the female that's a higher risk of hybrid, you know, like it's, it's going to get very challenging to to stratify the embryos as to which one you might want to use. And not only is it confusing for us as the providers, but imagine as a patient, you have all this information. It becomes very hard to pick which embryo to use first. Mm. Even beyond that, there's other technology which has been developed and we is not is still being tested to 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 confirm safety, where we can actually like say somebody only gets one egg each time and they have some disease that's running in their family and they make one embryo and the embryo is affected with that disease, we can actually go in and modify the genetic code to make it not have that disease. Oh my gosh. However, there's a lot that's not going to be available for prime time. Sure. For like way even past when the polygenetic testing is available because we don't know, like if we change that gene, we know that that gene has implications in this disease that we were looking for, but is that gene have implications elsewhere? Does like that mm-hmm. gene turn on another gene, which does this? Like, are we going to mess mm-hmm. up other yes. pathways? Sure. And so that all is in the, in, on the horizon, but we are not, we are not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wild. 
wild stuff. And there's a lot of ethical stuff, as you guys can exactly. imagine. It's like a lot of ethical stuff um, that that we really have to um, mm-hmm. think about. One, us, like fertility physicians as like a, a, a professional, like on a professional level. Um, what do we want to offer? What are we comfortable offering as a community? Like as patients and doctors Mm -hmm. together, we need to decide like what our patients, what feels Mm -hmm. right to patients. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's just, there's so many levels of, of, of ethics that we need to like think through before we sort of open up this Pandora's box of what what we could, we have more technology than we know how to handle right. yet. Yeah. Someday we will, but right. a lot of discussions between now and then on so many things. I know it's crazy. Been really, really exciting and fascinating and so helpful. I think that there are many women that will be thrilled to be able to get this information from you. Good. Oh, good, good, good. Fantastic. I'm so excited that you guys have me back for a part two. Mm. You let me talk and talk and talk. I love it. Oh, thank goodness. I mean, they don't want to hear us. We don't know anything. (laughs) Oh, no. But it's good. But it's it's like a... um, I think I probably said this last time. It's such valuable information and... Mm -hmm. And there's not really that many good sources. Like your gynecologist doesn't have time to... They got to do a breast exam and a pap and a million other things. They don't don't have time to to go through all this with patients. Mm -hmm. And... It's there's the internet is variable in terms well, of like variable, right? Like yeah, in, yeah. in terms of the, the accuracy of information. And so it gets to be really hard to get straight answers. I agree totally. It you does. can get completely different um answers, you know, when you Google the same, you know, one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. that's really sometimes uh, and bring those questions in. That's another advice to patients. When you come in, mm-hmm. um, if there's something you've been Googling, you can't figure out the answer to, and you've seen like two very different answers, bring those questions, write them down, bring them in. Or if you have a phone call scheduled with your doctor, absolutely, you know, ask us those things. Because usually if, if you're Googling it, 10 other people are. And we probably have had that question multiple times. And so please bring your questions to us when you come in. Wonderful. Yes. And Colby, can I ask one more question? Mm-hmm. Are there birth control side effects that people should know about? Um, not real. I mean, different birth controls impact different people um, very differently. So with the IUD, with a copper IUD, usually people's menstrual periods are the same or slightly heavier. So that's one thing to know about the copper IUD. Your, your periods might be a little bit heavier than than normal. Oh, mm-hmm. with the the um, progesterone releasing IUD, so that's like the Mirena, Kylina, Skyla. Um, those ones release progesterone only locally within the uterus, and so for those patients, it's actually the opposite. Their periods get much lighter, and sometimes their periods even go away altogether. So if that sounds great for you, you you don't you don't want to be getting your period, then that's a, a really good um a really good option. There's two types of oral birth control. So one, which is the birth control that I was referring to earlier, that's a combined birth control pill, has estrogen and progesterone. Usually people don't have too much breakthrough bleeding with that, um, with, with, with combined birth control pills. People who are on progesterone only birth control pills, um, like a, the main brand name is called Micronor. With that, you, um, if you are late taking the pill, even by like an hour, you potentially like breakthrough, have breakthrough bleeding and, um, and Occasionally, people that is one where you are likely to ovulate relatively quickly after stopping it, um, and so so um, that pill you can have some some breakthrough bleeding and breakthrough ovulation if you don't take it regularly. Nexplanon, um, which is the implant in your arm, people do have some breakthrough bleeding with that, and then the patch and the ring are basically the same as oral birth control with their estrogen and progesterone, and so there's like lots of different forms and. You should definitely, you know, work with your gynecologist. The, the biggest sort of like variety of ones that you have to choose from is that there's multiple different combined oral birth control pill, and they're all a little bit different in the progesterone component. And that's um, usually what 
people might make somebody have more or less symptoms from the oral birth control pill. Sometimes it can make people a little bit nauseous or feel a little bit bloated, or if they're not on enough estrogen, they can have breakthrough bleeding. So maybe they need a little more estrogen. And so work with your gynecologist to find one that that really works for you. Thank you, Colby. This was amazing. Of course. Thank you guys for having me back on. I really, I really appreciate it. Oh, oh my goodness. We are thrilled. Oh, thrilled. good. Good, good, good. Thanks again. Of course. You too. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Binds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe.